Have you ever been the last to be picked for a team? Have you ever had someone blatantly disregard you in favor of another person? Have you ever been avoided because you were not tall enough, good-looking enough, thin enough, big enough, smart enough, artsy enough, cool enough, nerdy enough, light enough, dark enough, not from the right family, not from the right part of town, not rich enough, not well-dressed enough? How did that make you feel? As a person, as an individual, how did that make you feel about yourself? What did that make you think that the other person or people were thinking of you? Most of us have probably felt the hurt of discrimination in some form or another. Most of us have felt the sting of being on the losing side of favoritism. But aside from the terrible feeling, have you ever thought about what makes it wrong? What makes favoritism wrong? Ultimately, what makes favoritism wrong is more than about the way it feels to us. What makes favoritism wrong, what makes discrimination wrong, is that it is an affront to justice. It's an affront to the equity that we all ought to experience. To parrot a famous saying, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. For the Christian, the idea of justice is tied not to the standard of common good that everyone, quote, ought to experience, but rather for the Christian, the idea of justice and equity begins first with the person of God. God is just. God deals with all of humanity in an impartial way. He deals with us all equally. Now, we are continuing in our series in James and have frequently come back to the overall theme that true faith works. True faith works even throughout seasons of affliction because true faith involves a qualitatively different and new kind of life granted by God to the Christian. And just as you know a tree by its fruit, the root determines the fruit, so the root of the Christian life, which is Jesus Christ himself, determines the fruit that is born from that life. If you say that you are in Christ, you should live as Christ. If you have been, as James says in chapter 1, brought forth by the word of truth, then your life ought to clearly demonstrate the truths and principles of the same word of truth. As we transition into chapter 2, James addresses the issue of favoritism as that seems to have been a significant issue in the church I'm going to read for us this morning James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 and um, well I'll, I'll read the whole chapter just for context and then we'll focus in on verses 1 through 13 this morning James chapter 2 let's read together or you follow along <coughs> My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have ye not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Father, as we come before your word once again, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds collectively, let them be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're instructed in this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, to show no favoritism because of the essence of our faith, verses 1 through 4. Because of the preference of our Lord, verses 5 through 7, and because of the guidance of the law, verses 8 through 13. The essence of our faith, the preference of our Lord, and the guidance of the law. Let's look at that first point. We are to show no favoritism because of the essence of our faith. Look again at verses 1 through 4. James says, Again, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The my brothers there seems to be James's favorite way of referring to the church. He says, you are my brothers. I'm appealing to you as my brothers. We share the same faith. This is a familial appeal. He's calling upon them as families, not addressing them in some stale, detached, formal way. This is not a business meeting. This is a letter written from a brother to brothers and sisters in the same family. My brothers show no partiality. Again, that's the main issue that he's addressing. Throughout the remainder of the letter, James is going to address a number of specific practical issues pertaining to the faith. Again, if you have the faith, if you are religious, as we talked about at the end of chapter 1, if you have been brought forth by the word of truth, then your life ought to be different. He says one way in which your life ought to be different is how you treat those around you. One author said it this way, and he translates the word that is translated partiality in our um, in our version and the ESV is translated as favoritism in his he defines uh, the the idea of favoritism he says an attitude of personal favoritism translate the translates the Greek word which has a literal meaning of lifting up someone's face with the idea of judging by appearance and on that basis, giving special favor and respect. It pertains to judging purely on a superficial level without consideration of a person's true merits, abilities, or characters. That's a very shallow way of thinking, in other words. In just a moment, James is going to qualify his terms a little bit further. However, before that, he continues to talk about the faith. He says, we have faith in the Lord of glory. Again, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The brothers, again, are those who hold the faith. They hold the faith. They have the faith. They possess the faith. They have been, again, brought forth by the word of truth and are therefore in the faith. The word of truth is a word about Jesus Christ. The word of truth is the gospel. It's the good news, and it points to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, James says this is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the preeminent claim of the early church. The rest of the world in that first century church was proclaiming Caesar is Lord. But the Christians, to the contrary, said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. Nowadays, you might hear Jesus is my friend or Jesus is my homeboy. But it was not so for the first century church. They proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. He is ruler. He is chief. He is both divine and human. He is God. He is Savior. The faith is a faith that has as its chief object Jesus Christ, the Lord. You cannot claim to be a Christian and have faith in anyone other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. If you are a Christian, you are so because you proclaim and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
The faith is a faith which recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. If he is Lord, then he is ruler. He is one to whom we are accountable. He is one whose will we are to follow as obedient subjects. <clears throat> he is, as James continues, the Lord of glory. Now, what is glory? We've talked about this in other messages. Glory is weightiness, it's importance, it's significance. We use the phrase that so-and-so throws their weight around when we want to describe what someone who is honored by others does to gain advantage. They are given honor and they use that honor to get what they want. Their weight is a way to describe the measure of their honor. Well, the glory of God is a way to describe his weightiness, the honor that is due to him. When you read glory, think honor, praise, adoration, worship that is due to him as a result of how significant, important, special, beautiful, majestic, wonderful, great, awe-inspiring God is as a person. And yes, we ought to think of him in those terms. That's what worship is, describing worth and value to him. He is a person. He's not a thing. He's not a subject. Again, Jesus is Lord. He is ruler. He is king. He is the preeminent one. Turn with me for a second to Colossians chapter 1. I've referenced this passage many times before. This is one of the most significant passages, I think, in all of the New Testament as uh, Paul is really focusing in on the person of Jesus Christ. He's writing to people in Colossae who were being distracted by various philosophies and ideologies in the world around them. I think Colossians is probably, and I say this about a lot of passages, it's probably one of the most significant passages for the church, one of the most significant letters for the church, aside from Ephesians, today as it speaks to those various philosophies and ideologies that are being thrown around and that are tempting us away from focusing on Jesus Christ. And that's really Paul's point. Jesus Christ is the big idea. All things have been made through him and for him, the text is going to say. In Colossians chapter 1, he's talking about who Jesus is. Well, in verse 12, he says that we ought to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on from there to expand this idea of who the son is. He, the son of God, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. What does it mean that he's the firstborn? Well, the idea of the firstborn doesn't mean that he was literally physically born first. The idea of the firstborn is a title. In, in antiquity, they used that term to describe usually the son who was born first. But the idea of the firstborn is a title. It means he's the one who's going to receive a double portion of the inheritance. He's the one who's usually going to take over the family business after the father passes on. And so Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Out of all of God's creation, Jesus is the one who receives the double portion of the inheritance, he's the one who takes over the family business on behalf of the Father. He is Lord. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And then he's like, this is essentially, um, uh, this is kind of like Jesus' rap sheet, right? Not rap sheet. This is more like his resume. If you want to know what Jesus is all about, 
You want to know why he's so important, so significant to the church? Just read this passage. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And I think we can miss that little phrase, for him. Because we tend to think that things were created for us, that the world revolves around us, that all of creation is all about us. But this text says that it's all about Jesus. All things were created for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's that, that word firstborn again. Again, not being used as literally being born first, but he's the one who came first out of death. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And then he goes on from there talking about our salvation. Another passage of crucial significance in thinking about who Jesus is, we find in Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. There we get that idea of the firstborn again whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, we could, we could probably spend a whole sermon thinking about verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The sun puts off puts off what we call rays, right? I mean, there aren't actually little tubes of light shooting down, individual tubes of light. When we usually, when we draw the sun, we draw it with little, you know, little tubes of light coming off of it to, to kind of signify the rays, but we know that's not actually what's happening. But the rays of the sun, the energy of the sun is pouring forth from it and it reaches even out to our planet and beyond and brightens up the entire solar system. And the rays of the sun, it's really just a part of the sun. It's the essence of the sun. It's, it's going forth. And that's the idea here. God is one. The rays, the radiance of God goes forth. And that's the son of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Not only that, but he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think that part of the problem is we, we're going to move back to the letter of James, but part of the problem is we think about who we are, as we think about our place in the world, is that we fail to consider the significance of the person of Jesus. And the most important thing for the people of God to do is to consider the significance of the person of Jesus. We don't think often enough about the significance of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is in all of his glory. The text calls him the Lord of glory, the king of glory, the glorious of glorious ones. There is no one who has greater glory than Jesus Christ. And all of what I just read is the reason why. 
There is no one like him. There's no one greater than him. No one more worthy of worship or adoration. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is infinitely more glorious than the most glorious human being that anyone can imagine. He's not just a step above the rest. There is a vast eternal chasm between Jesus and any other person who could claim glory. And that way, the very existence of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate equalizer. If he is the Lord of glory, if there is none more glorious than everyone else in comparison, is equally less glorious than he is. We have to understand that. Therefore, to the point of this text, to attempt to recognize someone else's glory, to attempt to, particularly within the body of Christ, elevate someone else's more glorious than another, such that we fall over ourselves to do more for them than we do for another, is really an insult to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's a failure to understand the glory of Jesus. Now, this is not to say that we don't honor those to whom honor is due, right? Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul says in Romans thirteen seven, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We are to honor human authority, Romans 13. Children are to honor their parents, Ephesians 6. We're to honor those who serve Christ well, Philippians 2.29. We are to honor widows who are truly widows indeed, 1 Timothy 5. Slaves are to give honor to their masters, 1 Timothy 6. Marriage is to be honored, Hebrews 13. Husbands are to honor their wives as the weaker vessels, 1 Peter 3. But while we're to give honor to those to whom honor is due, we're to honor those who have a measure of authority and who have various roles even within the body of Christ. The honor that is given is ultimately to honor the Lord himself because he's the one who gives honor. He's the one who gives authority. He's the one who has given those who have honor those roles. The reason why we give honor to them is not to gain something from them, but really to honor the Lord. I'll give you one more thing for consideration. Again, we're thinking about in the text of James the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of glory. And in that respect, the fact that he is the most glorious one puts everyone else on the same playing field. It levels out anyone else who could possibly claim glory because Jesus is infinitely more glorious than anyone else. But we also acknowledge that the the glory of Jesus Christ is not just in his person, but also in his work. And the fact that in his work, he showed no partiality. In fact, he frequently taught on the issue. And we looked at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 earlier, and that was Jesus essentially teaching on the issue of impartiality. It was the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to a lawyer, one who was supposed to be an expert in the law. He told him the story of the the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the lawyer who sought to justify himself, to say, yes, I do everything that I ought to do. I take care of my neighbor. Who are you trying to say my neighbor is? I do those things. 
And Jesus says, oh yeah, you, you take care of your neighbor? Well, consider this story for a moment. And then he references uh, the religious people, the priest, the Levite. The lawyer would have been right along with that group, probably walking on the side of the road. And I, I wonder if perhaps this story is not an illustration of something that Jesus knew from the lawyer's life. Whether it was or not, the point drove home the truth. Because it wasn't the religious people, the priest and the Levite, who cared for, who had compassion on the man who was weak and wounded, sick and sore. It was the Samaritan. And the Samaritans didn't typically have dealings with Jews and, like, and vice versa. The Jews scorned the Samaritans. They stayed away from the Samaritans. And yet in this story where you have two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, who should have known better. And yet they close their heart to the needs of, of this poor broken man. The one who is the hero of the story is a Samaritan. That's why we call it the story of the good Samaritan. It didn't matter to him what the man looked like, what ethnicity he was, or even if the man could repay him. He went out of his way to care for this man. I like this comment by one author as he considered Jesus and his desire to make sure that he didn't show partiality both in his work and his teaching. The author said this, during his incarnation, Jesus was the glory and image of God in human form. He still is. Like his father, he showed no favoritism, a virtue even his enemies acknowledged. It made no difference to Jesus whether the one to whom he spoke or ministered was a wealthy Jewish leader or a common beggar, a virtuous woman or a prostitute, a high priest or a common worshiper, handsome or ugly, educated or ignorant, religious or irreligious, law-abiding citizen or criminal. His overriding concern was the condition of the soul. God is not one to show partiality. Jesus himself did not show partiality. If that is so for him, it ought to be so for us as well. Well, again, we have faith in the Lord of glory, the one who is himself the most glorious and yet did not show partiality with others. But we also have faith in which there is no distinction. There ought to be no distinctions. Look at verses two through four again. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? This illustration, which could have been a scenario that James was told of or had witnessed himself involves two different people coming into the assembly. One man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and presumably that man is wealthy. The other man is clearly a poor man in shabby clothing. There is a very clear financial difference between the two. It needs to be noted here that James is not singling out those who are rich as if it is a sin to be rich. Being rich and being wealthy is not a sin. That's not his point in this text. Having money or resources is not a sin. One of the most often misquoted texts 
in our society is the idea that money is the root of all evil. When in fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. The point in the text is that those who love to have money or who seek to gain money pursue it in all kinds of evil ways. But if the Lord has thus blessed you with wealth and you didn't have to pursue wealth in evil ways, then so be it. In fact, to those who are wealthy, Paul will go on to say in that same text in Timothy, just to encourage them that they should not set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but that they should do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. That's his encouragement to those who are wealthy. He doesn't say stop being wealthy. Nevertheless, it is not inherently sinful to be wealthy. It's not inherently virtuous to be poor. And for that matter, James is also not commenting on the nature of their dress, right? He's not saying that there's anything wrong with those who come to church dressed in their quote-unquote Sunday best. But it's also not wrong for someone to come to church with a t-shirt and jeans on. Because the reality is that you can come to church dressed in a three-piece suit and have wickedness in your heart. Or you can come to church dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. It's really the condition of the heart. James is going to get to that in just a minute. But back to the text, James continues, if these two men come into your assembly and you, in response, as he says, pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, you say, sit here in a good place, while to the poor man you say, stand over there or sit at my feet. In other words, you're treating the rich man better. You give the rich man a special seat, a designated seat in a good place, but the poor man, you give them a common seat out of the way, or perhaps a seat that indicates their lesser status, sit down at my feet. James says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? It's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, you have. You have by your actions, by the fact that you treated the rich man better than the poor man, you have made distinctions among yourselves. The implication is that ought not to be so. Now, you might be thinking, I'd never do that. Who in their right mind in this day and age would do that? Well, have you ever recoiled from someone who came into the fellowship with less than stellar clothing or who smelled badly? Perhaps you didn't direct them to an insignificant seat, but you intentionally went out of your way to avoid them. You missed saying hello to them. Perhaps on the flip side of things, how about when someone has come into the fellowship who perhaps maybe not noticeably wealthy, but perhaps they're known or famous, someone who performs, a politician, a civic leader of some sort, maybe a Christian celebrity that you met at some point. We have this whole Christian celebrity subculture issue. When so-and-so, your favorite preacher, is coming in to preach in town or in such and such a church, people go flocking to that church just to hear the preacher. Or maybe your favorite singer or songwriter is having a concert at the church down the road and Christians flock in droves to hear this person, to get an autograph from them. One author said that human beings, even Christians, are not naturally inclined to be impartial. We tend to put people in pigeonholes in predetermined stratified categories, ranking them according to their looks, their clothes, their race or ethnicity, their social status, their personality, their intelligence, their wealth and power by the kind of car they drive, by the type of house and neighborhood they live in, by how they make us feel about ourselves. 
back to our text, the implication again is clear to make such distinctions is inherently wrong. We have to understand that the reason why it is inherently wrong is because of the nature of our faith. We have faith in the Lord of glory. Again, he is the glorious one. Before him, everyone else is equally and eternally less than glorious. And again, Jesus himself is a great equalizer when it comes to importance, significance, glory. There's no one greater. Moreover, the example that he left for us is one of never showing partiality, particularly for gain. He treated everyone the same. Therefore, when we're in the body of Christ, there should be no distinctions, no arbitrary distinctions that would suggest that one is inherently more glorious or better than another. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. As many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self and have put on the new self. He says you've been saved. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You have new life in you. And that new self is being renewed in knowledge after its creator. Here, he says, among those who've put off the old self and put on the new self, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on then, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Arbitrary distinctions such as financial status, societal designations, and such caste systems that still exist in some parts of the world, especially here in the United States, arbitrary distinctions such as race and ethnicity have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Christ died to create a unified church. Particularly when it comes to ethnicity, since it's still a major issue in our day. This obviously doesn't mean that we physically cease to be a part of whatever ethnic group we belong to. It doesn't mean that we can no longer acknowledge certain customs and cultural habits that belong to our ethnicity. It does mean that our being a different ethnicity than a brother or sister in Christ cannot be a source of division, nor a means of making divisions among ourselves. I'm grateful that this is not an issue here at Catonsville Baptist Church, though it still remains an issue at large in the Church of America. The church hour is still one of the most segregated hours throughout the entire week. Our identity in Christ is preeminent. It is the greater identity, and that is because God in Christ has made it so by his death for us on the cross. He's given us a new identity, a greater identity. That's even why we call each other brother and sister. It's not an arbitrary title to be thrown around by those who are religious. 
We call one another brother and sister because we have the same heavenly father. We share the same Lord Jesus Christ. We have one spirit dwelling in us. We have the same new life coursing through our veins. We have a faith in which there are no suitable distinctions. Well, let me say it this way. There are no suitable distinctions that would excuse treating one another better or worse. The world would do that. The world does that. The world makes distinctions based on economic status, caste, political views, influence, or power. But in Christ, there are no such, such distinctions. And I said that there are no suitable distinctions that would excuse treating one either better or worse than another, but I need to work, make one further comment and then we'll move on. Making distinctions or discriminating is not inherently wrong. The issue that James is addressing here in making distinctions is making distinctions in order to excuse treating a person, one person better than another. And the root issue there is motivation, which again, we'll get to in a second. But making distinctions or discriminating in and of itself is not inherently wrong. The world in our government has in recent years as a means of exercising political correctness and aiding the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ agenda has gone out of its way to label any and all discriminating as wrong. Time and time again, businesses are being taken to court for refusing to serve those who would ask them to compromise their values, and the label that is being used is discrimination. The command here in James's letter is not that we should never make any distinctions. That would be impossible. Some distinctions are necessary. We try our best, for example, to discriminate between good doctors and bad doctors. A surgeon who has perhaps just gotten out of school or who has had a number of lawsuits for malpractice is probably not one that you're going to go to. You will make a distinction between that person. You will discriminate against that surgeon. A good store versus a bad store. If you've seen, for example, on the news that there are rats hanging out in the bakery case at a certain local market, you're probably not going to go back there. You'll look for somewhere else to get your croissants. How about this? We all make distinctions about those who we allow into our home. Those who we give keys to the front door. We discriminate. We don't give a key to just anyone. So all discrimination is not inherently wrong, is my point. The point at which making distinction or discriminations is wrong is where James further qualifies his statements. He says in the text again that we make distinctions and we become judges with evil motives. It is the motive of the heart when making distinctions, when discriminating, that is the issue. Again, the world hears of any form of discrimination or distinction and they make an argument that it is inherently evil. And the problem is that there's no way for them to legislate the morality of our motives. So the best they can do is create laws to seek to avoid all forms of discrimination. But in the church, our desire is not to cancel out all forms of discrimination. Again, I just gave you a number of other examples. But if we're thinking about the church in general, all people cannot serve as pastors and elders. Everyone cannot serve as a deacon. Everyone should not be allowed to run Sunday school classes. For that matter, everyone shouldn't be allowed to sing. I don't know why, why you guys allow me to sing up here, but that's kind of where we are. The issue isn't that there should be no distinctions, no discrimination. The issue is when distinctions are made with evil motives. 
The implication of James's words is that the reason why in the case he mentioned distinctions are being made between rich and poor is that those who make the distinctions, you rich man sit here, you poor man stand over there. Those who make the distinctions are seeking an advantage from the rich person. You give him a good seat in order to get something from him. Remember, again, that most of those to whom James was writing would have been poor themselves. Being a Christian in the first century was a sure way to be marginalized by both your family and the greater society. One author said it this way, to better appreciate James's emphasis in this passage, it's necessary to understand that the vast majority of early converts to Christianity were Jewish and poor. If they were not already, many suddenly became poor when, because of their faith, they were ostracized from families and society so that a husband and father lost his job or wife and mother was thrown out of the house without anything but the clothes on her back. There was an intense hatred to fellow Jews who converted to Christianity. In, the first, in his first letter to the church, Paul asked believers to consider the fact that there were among them not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Clearly, there would have been some who would have been exceptions to this rule, some who would have had wealth, but that would have been the exception. It would have been tempting for those in the early church to see the wealthy who came in their services and to immediately consider what needed to be done in order to gain advantage. Maybe we should give them a good seat because they'll give more money in the offering plate. Maybe we should give them a good seat because then we'll be able to befriend them and the influence and power they have in the society will then transfer to us. There's no reason to give the man in shabby clothes a good seat to pay special attention to him because he can't do anything for me. But again, the faith that we have in the Lord is a faith in the Lord of glory. It is his glory that we should seek, not our own. The faith that we have in the Lord of glory is a faith in which there should be no distinctions. We are all one in Christ. We all have peace with God through Christ. We all have the blessing of God in Christ. We're all citizens of heaven in Christ. The faith that we have in the Lord of glory is a faith in which we ought to seek the good of others and not our own personal gain. Do you get that? Seeking to make distinctions in order to gain advantage for yourself is not the goal of ministry. It's not the goal of our gathering. The goal of our gathering is to seek to be a blessing to one another. And as we pursue that, the goal is unity in the faith. I was reminded of this as I was studying for the sermon, but I was a part of a church plant many years ago. My role was to focus on outreach. This was back when Saddleback Church was a lot more popular and Rick Warren's purpose-driven life and then you know, all the other purpose-driven books that came out as a result of that came rolling in. That was kind of a big deal at the time. There were conferences to churches to go to that outlined careful step-by-step programs to reach your community better so that you could have a large megachurch like the Saddleback Community Church. A pastor of this particular church plant went to such conference and when he came back had developed ideas about outreach which included identifying some of the most wealthy communities around us. And for us to intentionally pursue and to reach out to them. The conversation was not, hey, who's around us? Let's reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The conversation was, here are some communities which happen to be very wealthy communities. Let's focus on outreach there first. It was at that time, and there were a number of other red flags at well that kind of led my wife and I moving on from that particular ministry. 
But we cannot approach ministry, any ministry, by thinking of first what we can get from them. We must consider all of our outreach ministries from the perspective of what we can give, how we can expose others, no matter what their ethnicity or social economic status, no matter what they can do for us, how we can expose them to the Lord of glory. And as people come into the fellowship, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, our desire ought to be to show them Christ. Again, as we consider one another, no matter what we look like, no matter what we sound like, whether the person next to you is someone you have in a Sunday school class, someone that you've known for many years or not, whether they're in the same stage of life as you are or not, our desire ought to be, how can I serve that person today? And we frequently reference Hebrews chapter 10 and thinking about the fact that we ought to gather together, not forsaking our assembling together, but he says that we ought to not forsake our assembling together so that we can encourage one another. When we come to the fellowship, our desire ought to be not what can I get, but what can I give? How can I serve? In Ephesians chapter 4, as we read about a biblical view of church ministry. Paul talks about pastors and teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the spirit. The work of ministry is building up the body of Christ. The work of ministry, building up the body of Christ, is what the saints are to do. That's what you all are to do. That's your job, building up the body of Christ. Yes, it is partly my job. The part of my job in that whole transaction is equipping you to be able to do that better. But your thought process, as you think about what it means to come to church, to be a part of church, is what can I do? How can I use my gifts to build up the body of Christ? Not what can I get? What am I going to get when I get there? How is this going to help me? How is this going to meet my particular needs we've had people come through these doors frequently who come sit for a little while then we never see or hear from them again often when I speak to those people it's because they're looking for a specific thing that would make them more comfortable that they're not seeing a large and thriving Sunday school ministry for kids a large and thriving youth group ministry a more robust time of worship and singing more programs more events special seasonal worship times more activities often equated with success more things that touch my heart. There's very little consideration to giving or thinking of where I can serve or where the church is lacking and how I can build that up. We're often so me-oriented, thinking of what I can get, that we fail to remember that God has designed his church not to be me-oriented, but them-oriented. That's the essence of love. And love ought to override all of what we think and do in the church. By this we know love, John says in 1 John 3, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Don't just say you love people. Don't say in some general detached way you love the church. If you're not going to actually do it. Christ died for a unified church. Our love for one another ought to reflect the love that God has for us. Failing to love, failing to serve, drawing 
ungodly distinctions among ourselves disrupts the plan of God from the maturity and unity of the body. The church failing to reach a mature unity is both a detriment to every believer present as well as dishonoring to the glory of God among us. If we make distinctions, if we're setting up one person as more important than another, again, in James's mind, the real question is, what is in your heart? What are you thinking? What is the intent of your heart? Do you have evil motives or do you have motives that seek the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ and the glory of God? Well, James has much more to say on this topic. We'll pick up at verse 5 next week. I like this quote here. One author said, in thinking about this passage, there's a strong affinity between what James wrote in this passage in Leviticus 19.15. The command in that verse says, Do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. End quote. Or that's the end of Leviticus 19. Respect for the entire people of God, particularly toward the defenseless and needy, runs throughout the commands of Leviticus 19, he says. Whenever judgments are made based on selfish gain rather than on true need or on the truth about a wrongful act, justice is perverted. Neglect of orphans and widows and the poor visitor in the church are prime examples of Christian neglect, that is, sins of omission and injustice. The Lord does not show favoritism, and neither should his people. The law of God reclaimed by believers in Jesus has as one of its central characteristics the cultivation of godliness. But if believers fail at this point, they cannot represent the faith of Jesus. The example of crass favoritism in the following verse, a partiality that disfavors the poor, illustrates how this sin involves a corruption within the entire community of believers, end quote. Again, true faith works. True faith seeks to uphold the justice and impartiality of God. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is to be honored above all. In spite of that, he himself showed no partiality, but to the contrary, gave his life so that all who trusted in him would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus didn't only die for the rich. He didn't only die for the wealthy. He didn't only die for the Jews. That is the essence of our faith. The truth of who Jesus is stands as the foundation of our faith. Who he is, what he's done should govern all of what we do. That means there should be no distinctions, unnecessary, ungodly distinctions made among us. And that means that all of us, all of what we do ought to be for the good of one another and not to exploit one another. True faith seeks to love those for whom Christ died sacrificially and impartially to reflect and magnify his glory. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you again for your word, which is truth, your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you for reminding us of the glory of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of glory, that he is king, he is ruler, he is chief, that we ought to abide in him, that we ought to live and walk as he walked, that we ought to love as he loved, that we ought to love impartially as he loved impartially and gave his life as a ransom for all. Help us to be intentional about giving our lives as a ransom for one another, to give our lives sacrificially to one another, to not love in word or tongue only, but in deed and in truth. Help us to love impartially,
Help us to love the brother or sister who's sitting next to us as well as the one who's on the further side of the church. From the one who is in the front pew to the one who is in the rear pew, help us to love indiscriminately and fervently to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of one another. We pray this in his name. Amen.